Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Women's History. I'm talking to Susan Johnson today. Uh, Thanks so much for joining me to discuss your new book, Writing Kit Carson, Fallen Heroes in a Changing West, which was published with the University of North Carolina Press um, just this last year in 2020. And I'd like to briefly introduce you to our listeners, and then we'll get into our conversation about your book. Yeah, Susan Lee Johnson is the Harry Reid Endowed Chair for the History of the Intermountain West at the University of Nevada, Nevada, Las Vegas, and Professor Emeritus at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She's also the president-elect of the Western History Association. Thanks so much for talking to us today. Um, and I'm wondering if you might start actually with just telling our listeners a little bit about yourself, um, you know, sort of your past, your influential mentors, how you became interested in Western history or gender history? Sure. Um, So uh, thank you so much for talking with me about the book today, Jen. Um, Yeah, I grew up not in the West, uh, but in Wisconsin. First traveled there as uh, as a teenager to uh, visit uh, a a great aunt who had a a summer home there. and it was that visit that really got me interested uh, in the West. And then in college, I went to a small Lutheran liber- liberal arts college, Carthage College in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And um, my favorite courses there were, first I took a course in American Indian history, then a course in the history of the West. And um, I was very quickly uh, hooked um, uh, in college. Um, and I went on, uh, worked for a year and then, uh, got a master's degree focusing on, uh, the history of the West and also women's history at Arizona state university, um, in, uh, in the early eighties. So in college, I had taken the very, very first women's history course ever offered at my little college. And uh, it was a revelation to me. I had never really 
thought about women as historical actors. So when I went on for my master's, I made sure that to go someplace where, you know, there were historians of the North American West, uh, but also women's historians. Uh, and I worked with um, Mary Rothschild there was my, uh, my primary advisor. Uh, then I worked for um, several years between my master's and my PhD um, on the editorial staff of the journal Signs, uh, a, a women's studies journal, and um, which was kind of a schooling in, it, in and of itself. I learned much more about the interdisciplinary field of what was then women's studies and uh, then went on to graduate school and uh, pursued a PhD at Yale University, again, looking for an institution, a department that had um, uh, you know, noted scholars in the area of Western history, but also in uh, women's and what was becoming, just starting to become gender history at that, at that time. So, uh, my primary advisors were William Cronin and Howard Lamar, uh, but Nancy Cott was also on my committee and a very, very important uh, mentor to me. That's great. I, normally, the biographical section of the interview, you know, is somewhat disconnected from the book, but in this case, it's in the book. Yes. Um, <laughs> um, so. Maybe let's talk about writing Kit Carson. It, it's largely about two women who were amateur historians, right? Bernice Blackwelder and Quantrill McClung, writing about Kit Carson and and also about you. Um, but can you tell me how you found them? What drew you to their story? Yes, I can. I you know I had published my first book. Roaring Camp on the Social History of the California Gold Rush. Um, and so I was really trained as a 19th century historian. And when I was finishing that project, I started to conceive of a new 19th century project that would look at uh, the, the famous or infamous, depending on your point of view, uh, frontiersman Christopher or Kit Carson, looking at his intimate relationships with indigenous and Spanish Mexican women. And I started uh, doing research on that. Carson married uh, uh, first an Arapaho woman. She uh, died quite young, then a Cheyenne woman who didn't stay with him for long, didn't like him much, uh, and then married into a prominent northern New Mexican family, the Jaramillo family of, of Taos, New Mexico. So I thought I was going to look at those relationships. Uh, I saw them as, uh, as Kit Carson marrying power, that is marrying into communities that still held sway over their geographies of residence. So I started doing that research, uh, did research for about a year or two, and uh, I knew that there was a genealogist in Denver who had published uh, a genealogy of the Carson family, but also the Bent family and the Boggs family. The Bents and the Boggs, like Kit Carson, were kind of white frontiersmen who uh, traveled down the Santa Fe Trail and established themselves in what's now the Southwest. So I knew that Quantrill McClung had published this genealogy and also an even larger supplement 
uh, to it a decade later. And um, I decided her papers were at the Denver Public Library where she had worked as a younger woman. She left them to the Denver Public Library when she died. And I knew she had uh, that her papers were there. And I thought, well, I'll just look at those and just see if they might lead me to some primary source evidence that I might not stumble on as quickly on my own. So I went through that collection. I didn't really find what I was looking for. But what I did find was about a 30-year correspondence between Quantrill McClung and another woman, Bernice Blackwelder, who were both interested in, uh, in Kit Carson in starting in the 1950s and into the 60s and 70s. Um, so as Quantrill McClung was uh, working on these genealogies, Bernice Blackwelder was writing uh, what came to be a kind of popular biography of Kit Carson called uh, Great Westerner. And that correspondence, and there were maybe 300 some letters, just transfixed me um, because these women started as collaborators, really as kind of, you know, research partners. Over time, they became very, very close friends. But their correspondence from the 1950s to the early 1980s sort of traced that period when uh, frontier figures like Kit Carson fell from grace. Uh, not that they had been beloved by all Americans in the past, certainly uh, they were not. Um, but in the kind of dominant popular culture, figures like Kit Carson were the heroes of U.S. westward expansion. So here were these two women working on Carson across that period when uh, figures like Carson uh, fell into disrepute. And I decided that would make a really interesting article. And it's an article that I actually wrote. And I never published it because it left so many questions unanswered. And I had so much material um, that, you know, I wasn't able to use in, in, in that form. And so over time, it took me two or three years, but I decided... I think I'm going to write a little book about these two women and their interest in Kit Carson uh, over this period. And I wanted to understand why these women focused on this, uh, this uh, pioneer white man um, and what that meant across, uh, across those decades. So, uh, I started writing a book and 20 years later, it became my little big book. Um, <laughs> it's a very, it's a very big book. Um, <laughs> so that's, that, that's uh, the kind of uh, thumbnail uh, sketch of how it came to be. Great. And uh, I think one of the sort of central concepts that you put forward in the, in this big book, which is like just a pleasure to read cover to cover um, is this idea of that they traffic in men. And I was wondering if you could sort of talk a little bit about that concept and how you think it helps illuminate um, their lives. 
Yes. Well, of course, it's a it's a kind of play on uh, the notion of a traffic in women, which, you know, feminists from uh, Emma, Emma Goldman to uh, Gail Rubin developed um, over the course of the 20th century. And uh, it's not simply a reversal of the notion of a traffic in women. Um, women, actual women, uh, female identified people have been trafficked in traffics in women, whether through uh, conventional forms of marriage or prostitution or what have you. A traffic in men is a it is a kind of reversal, not always a very successful re- reversal. I see it as a kind of uh, a weapon of the weak, to use uh, James Scott's uh, formulation. It's uh, so in the case of Quantrill McClung and and uh, Bernice Blackwelder, what I thought at first was because I was trying to understand why were they drawn to this man, and in its most simple form. Uh, you know, writing about famous white men um, gets you published and earns you money and gets you in libraries and gets people to pay attention to you. But I also realized that um, female-bodied people who identify themselves as women have long trafficked in men in many, many different ways. Sometimes it's a matter of complaining about a spouse or a boyfriend or a boss. Um, It's the things that women say to one another about men that they wouldn't necessarily say to men or in the presence of men. So it, it became, it's not the central argument of the book, but it is a central argument of the book, one that I trace um, all the way through. And of course, these two women were trafficking in Western men, not only across the period when figures like Kit Carson were falling from grace, but also as you know, uh, whether we'd like wave metaphors or not, but uh, uh, the second wave of feminism um, was, uh, you know, was in the works. So they were also um, trafficking in men at a time when doing so um, also was, uh, was falling into disrepute. And I wanted to, I wanted to understand that. Mm-hmm. I think it's such a powerful concept for, um, I think especially for illuminating both like uh, a lot of women's everyday lives, but also a lot of early historians who happen to be women, right? That right. it's about these two women, but a lot of these ideas can sort of um, be expanded out to this whole generation, right? Of Exactly. Of both um, amateur and, and early uh, women professional historians, um, you know, if Bernice Blackwelder and Quantrill McClung had decided to focus on, uh, you know, Kit Carson's spouses, the, the Northern Arapaho woman singing grass, the Southern Cheyenne woman making out road, and the Northern New Mexican woman, Josefa Jaramillo, probably folks wouldn't have paid much attention to their, to their work. Now, mm-hmm. 
that's true. But it, what's also true is that they did pay more attention to those women and those relationships than male historians were paying at the time. So um, I will absolutely uh, give them that. And it was kind of shocking to me when I thought I was doing something um, you know, so novel when I started what I thought was a 19th century project and then realized that these two women starting in the 1950s had, um, for different reasons, but had paid attention to those intercultural, interracial relationships um, in a very different historical context than, um, you know, I was going to pay attention to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought that was a spe- felt especially illuminating for Quantrill McClung because she was writing the genealogy and there was so little narrative to what she was doing, but she seemed to be especially open to following the paths that those genealogies took. Um, That's right. I mean, I think she she was not... It did not bother her, I don't think. It's hard to tell from a genealogy, but I also have her correspondence with um, Bernice Blackwelder, she seemed to take these, you know, intercultural or interracial relationships in stride as just sort of part of what one does as as a genealogist. So in some ways, she was um, a little more open to, uh, you know, what in mainstream America at that point was uh, you know, unconventional kinds of relationships. Bernice Blackwelder, as a novelist, I think, I mean, she embraced those relationships. She didn't downplay them. But I think she was somewhat more troubled by them. And she kind of created a, a narrative for uh, Kit Carson's relational li- life where his earlier relationships with indigenous women were sort of the products of his more uncivilized youth. And then his later, uh, much uh, longer relationship, longer marriage with Josefa Jaramillo, uh, whom she figured as Spanish, uh, not Mexican, um, were kind of the products of his more uh, mature and kind of civilized adulthood. So she kind of gave it, gave it a narrative, uh, a, a narrative spin to make sense of those relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, and for both these women, I think throughout the book, you, you pay really close attention to race and, and especially for them, how whiteness shaped stories they told. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Right. So the, the book is, organized, um, as, as you know, in, uh, in an unconventional way. So it, mm-hmm. it, it starts uh, basically with their meeting, in, uh, and they met by letter, not in person, in the 1950s, and then traces their early work, Quantrill McClung's uh, Carson Bent Boggs Genealogy, published in 1962, and Bernice Blackwelder's uh, um, biography, Great Westerner, also published in 1962. Um, So we meet them at that moment, um, at a moment when, uh, you know, the West still figured in a pretty positive sense in American popular culture. Um, 
but was on kind of the, the verge of, of a downfall. And it's also a moment um, when uh, the civil rights movement is gaining ground. You know, there's a, 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 a movement to, um, you know, uh, permit interracial marriage. So they're writing in, the, in this really uh, moment of, of change or kind of on the brink of, of social and cultural change. Um, but then they continue, and the, the next part of the book continues into the late 1960s and late uh, and early 1970s, when figures like Carson were uh, coming under attack, um, both from from activists, from academics, um, from all corners, and uh, they had to make sense of that. And by then, you know. Uh, even white Americans living in, you know, largely white, uh, white neighborhoods could not not pay attention to uh, civil rights, black power, um, you know, the burgeoning Chicano movement, etc. So they are always grappling um, with their own whiteness, with the whiteness of, of Kit Carson and other men who they Western men who they write about. Um, but then the book dips back um, into their early lives. So it's, it's kind of in reverse chronological order. And the um, very long section of the book that follows uh, the, the era of the 1970s traces their lives from, in Quantrill McClung's case, case, the late 19th century, uh, Bernice Blackwelder was born in 1902, is a little bit younger, traces their lives as Western women. Quantrill McClung was born, lived, and died in Denver. Uh, Bernice Blackwelder was born Bernice Fowler in uh, a small town in kind of central, maybe a little bit to the east, Kansas. Um, and it traces their, uh, their encounter with racial change um, really throughout their childhoods, uh, young adulthoods, and um, uh, their middle years. So it kind of tells the backstory of their encounter with racial change um, that helps to make sense of what they did in the 1960s and 70s. Does that sort of yeah. uh, begin to answer the question? Yeah. And so did you put the early, it, because it, it is, um, I think, unusual, right, to sort of go back to the beginning at the end of the book? It's very unusual. It's, um, I mean, the only other history book, I'm sure there are others, but the one that comes to mind is uh, Richard Whiteman's Fox, um, what's it called? Uh, Trials of Intimacy, I think. And he plays with chronology sort of for different reasons, but in, in some similar ways. And I think what I was trying to do, how I wrote the book is kind of how I encountered these women. So I met them in their correspondence uh, and their published work in the 1960s and 70s. And it wasn't until I had spent a long time with that material that I started to uncover um, much more evidence about their younger, uh, their younger lives. And 
And it was a revelation to me. And I sort of wanted the reader to have that same revelation. So that was one motivation. Another motivation is to tell their lives, you know, starting in a you know, conventional chronological way, uh, starting with their childhoods in, uh, in Denver and Brookville, Kansas, respectively, I worried that the reader wouldn't care because one wouldn't know what they did in their adulthood that I found so interesting. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to kind of lay out uh, the work that they did and um, both the large historical context and the kind of day-to-day -day quotidian context of their lives um, when they were working on Kit Carson and other Western men in the 50s and 60s and 70s and kind of hold back um, uh, their, their growing up years as Western women, their encounter with racial change, their uh, sort of class status, uh, changing class status over that time period. Um, and so that's why I did that. And, and you know, and then then the, the 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 book loops back around in the in the epilogue to the very last years of their lives, so the late 1970s, uh, early 1980s, as they were, um, you know, in failing health, uh, still trying to to write history in one way or another. Um, but that's that's where the book ends. Mm -hmm. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. I think that's one way, but there's so many ways in this book that the book sort of, um, it's very much a history book, but it, it blends genre a little bit that you seem to be bringing in inspiration from a lot of different types of writing. I mean, that's kind of the beginning at the end feels very novelistic to me that, you know, you sort of expose this, this thing. Um, and and it, it seems to sort of run up against some, some of these conventions that we have. And for me, that meant that the book demanded a consistent attention, um, that and many other kinds of genre, you know, sort of breaking things that you, you did, um, sort of that you can't, and I don't know if you meant these things as sort of critiques of the genre that you just, you know, you sort of, when you're reading a book for comprehensive exams or something that you sort of, you skim, you can't, I, I didn't, I don't think you should or could skim this book very well. I hope, I hope not. I mean, you know, some of my very, very favorite history books follow a typical pattern for a history book, which, it, you know, there's an introduction that kind of lays out the arguments and the sources, but also kind of situates the book in the, the relevant historiography, often critiques that historiography in order to kind of make a place, um, you know, for the author's work. And then there are 
four or five or six chapters and they have introductions and conclusions. And if you're in a hurry, if you're reading for an exam or a class or what have you, you know, you can read those introductions and conclusions, skim through the body of the chapter. Um, and then usually there's a, a conclusion that kind of wraps everything up. I love books like that, but I sometimes feel like I'm reading the same book about a whole lot of different things over and over again. So I wanted to, it was an experiment. I wanted to try something different. And because this was so biographical of, you know, of these two women and also to some degree of, you know, Kit Carson and, and Singing Grass and Making Out Road and Josefa Jaramillo, um, I, I felt that the, the the biographical aspects also lended themselves to a different a different form format, um, and as you've alluded to um, early in our conversation, I also write myself into this um, into this book, my own relationship um, to these women, to their interest in Carson. So there is. Um, I mean, I don't know. I, I haven't ever quantified how much of, of, of the book does this. It's usually at the beginning and end of each part of the book. The, the book is divided into parts rather than chapters, you know, of a few pages. Um, but, uh, but it does blend sort of memoir and biography and a lot of kind of tra traditional History. I mean, I, I put these women's lives in, you know, broad historical contexts, whether it's uh, the history of, um, you know, women's intimate relationships across, uh, across the 20th century, whether it's the history of the Cold War or civil rights or changing ideas and boundaries of, of whiteness across the decades of the 20th century. So there's lots and lots of kind of big picture history in there. And for that, I rely on those wonderful books, often those wonderful books that, that do follow a more, a more traditional pattern. So I don't mean to critique, um, you know, other historians for the way they write history books. I love those books and I depend on those books, but I just, I wanted to try something a little bit different. Mm -hmm. And um, could you talk a little bit more about uh, why you chose to write yourself into the, this book as you, as you say you do? I mean, it, and it, it is, there is, uh, you parallel your life with theirs um, really throughout the book um, and also talk about divergences. Right. Well, I, I think when I decided to, you know, turn this into a book and not just write an article and to write, you know, what increasingly I was sure was a big book rather than a little book. Um, and I realized I was going to be, you know, digging into these women's lives um, in incredibly intrusive ways and kind of holding them accountable for the kind of history uh, they wrote and for, um, I don't know, the way they thought about and experienced um, racial change in the neighborhoods that they lived in, in Denver and for um, Bernice Blackwelder. 
Uh, she lived a lot of her adult life in Chicago and uh, some of it also in, uh, I'm sorry, there are uh, sirens going by, um, um, but also in uh, suburban Washington, D.C. So if I was going to um, dissect their lives like this and hold them accountable for the things they did that I admired and the things they did that I did not admire, it just felt irresponsible not to hold myself to account. And uh, if I was using the historical contexts that they lived in, both the kind of big historical contexts and the kind of their day-to-day lives, if I was going to talk about how those contexts shaped the history they produced, then how could I not talk about the same for myself as I was writing, writing their histories? So um, it, and again, I don't think all historians should do this in everything they write. And I, unless I live a really, really long time, I'll probably never do this uh, again. But I, so it was, uh, you know, it was an experiment, um, but also it, you know, I, I just think historians are not omniscient, they are not God, they are not omniscient observers. Um, they bring to, uh, to their research and their writing, um, you know, their own uh, baggage as individuals, as uh, people of uh, a, a particular race or sexuality or gender uh, or class, um, their training. Um, and I, I just think it's responsible to, um, to interrogate those things, especially if you're interrogating all of those things for the people you're writing about. Mm-hmm. I I understand that completely. I, I think that there is something, especially when you're doing histories that expose people's intimate lives, that historians can often, you know, there's a little bit of voyeurism um, mm-hmm. in it. And I imagine that becomes especially, uh, that, that feeling becomes especially strong when you're writing biography. And right. um, you're speculating about things, sometimes you're speculating about things that they purposely did not put in their archives. Right. Um, and, and it seems very empathetic to me, though also exposing <laughs> right. to put yourself in the book. Right. And these women shaped uh, their, own, their own archives in different ways. Um, Quantrill McClung was a librarian by training, kind of stumbled into genealogy uh, when she was named the genealogical librarian for the Denver Public Library uh, in the middle of her, uh, of her life. Um, but she knew what she was doing, and she uh, created a huge archive of her work related to Carson, and also I don't actually write a lot about this in the book. She also did a major genealogical project on Colorado's governors and their their families. That was published in um, in serial form in the Colorado Genealogist. But you know, she collected all those materials and uh, she left them to the Denver Public Library. But she also created uh, an archive of um, 
much more personal materials, especially from her sort of youth and young adulthood, a series of nine scrapbooks that she put together that reveal uh, quite a bit about her, um, about her, her young adulthood, her life alongside other librarians, women, most of whom did not marry. Um, so, and she left that to what is now History Colorado was then called the Colorado Historical Society. So it was curious to me that she separated out the work material, left it to her former place of employment and the more personal uh, material that she left elsewhere. Bernice Blackwelder is a different story. I mean, she wrote a, you know, this popular biography of Kit Carson that she published in 1962, but she had had a very varied life before that. She was a musician. She was a singer. She married a man who was also a singer, and she had a whole long life in the 19, uh, tw- late 20s, 30s, 40s as a performer. Uh, she sang in light opera. She sang on the radio, um, and uh, her husband, uh, her husband did the same. She saved all of that material. She did. It, she didn't leave it anywhere. She left it. She gave it to her uh, her niece, who later uh, kindly gave it to me to use for the purpose of my research. But um, you know, and she saved her book about Kit Carson. But she had a whole other project that she never finished. So after she finished her biography of, of Kit Carson, she worked for the rest of her life on what she called a biographical dictionary of Westerners. So it would have been kind of a reference work, a uh, little kind of um, you know biographies of famous Westerners and all of these Westerners, as far as I can tell, she didn't say this, but she wrote to Quantrill McClung about it. So I have a sense of what it might've looked, looked like. They were all men. And as far as I can tell, with the exception of, uh, uh, the fur trapper, um, Jim Beckworth, uh, they were all white. Um, she worked on that for, oh, I don't know, a couple of decades but she never finished it. She grew, grew increasingly frustrated. And according to her niece, she burned the entire project. So mm-hmm. uh, it's just it's just gone. So I have a huge archive of her, um, you know, sort of youth and young adulthood. Uh, I have her book. I have her letters. Fortunately, Quantrill McClung saved uh, the letters she got from Bernice Blackwelder. Um but I don't have that second project uh, that that she never finished. So I don't know how we got onto archives, but um, you know these women very consciously created their archives and shaped what one you know could and couldn't say about them. Yeah, they. I, I think this book is so much about about so many things, but you know about creation of art, your own archive and also the writing of history generally, and you know mid century America and nineteenth the nineteenth century West. Um, I mean, there's really so many so many things that it illuminates, um, and I'm guess I'm wondering, sort of to come back to your place in the book, is sort of what the what the the parallels you see between yourself and and these two women so 
I mean, it's, uh, you know, I begin the book with exactly that, with um, how I am like them and how I am different from them. So they were both uh, white. They were both Protestant. I think Quantrill McClung more actively so than Bernice Blackwell, but certainly raised Protestant. Um, they were interested in the West and particularly in Western men. Um, but there were differences. Um, they were absolutely sure they were women. They never questioned that. That is something I have questioned from uh, a very, very young age. Mm-hmm. Um, they did not, at least in their letters to one another, they didn't think out loud about um, about race and racial privilege. Um, I had to dig kind of deep and read their uh, the materials they left behind very closely to to understand kind of how race operated in their lives. Um, you know, their 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 intimate lives were very interesting to me. Bernice Blackwelder, um, you know, born Bernice Fowler, married uh, a man from North Carolina named Harold Blackwelder, who, as I said, was also a singer. Uh, but the two of them never had children. So they were conventional in one way as a kind of white, married, at least aspiring middle class, although they did not mostly live as middle class people as adults. Um, so they, um, you know, were conventional in that way, but they, and I think they did want to have children. I think they could not. Um, and um, that, I think, you know, especially in the, the 1950s, it, it was hard on them and hard on Bernice Blackwelder. Quantrill McClung is a very different story. She she never married, and she was very careful about what she saved so that, I mean, I think she was, uh, so that one cannot really figure out what her relational story is. She moved in a circle of uh, other, uh, you know, when this is in the 19-teens and 20s and 30s, um, other librarians, also women she met um, through, she was very interested in, in, um, in foreign missions, um, and she m- m- met women, you know, through her church and through that, um, uh, and very, very close relationships. At one point, I thought I had found a suitor, a male uh, suitor, um, and I actually went so far as to write uh, the section um, as if he was a male suitor, and then discovered very belatedly that this guy was her cousin. So it seems very unlikely. Um, I mean, it's not impossible, but it seems unlikely that that was uh, an, an intimate relationship. At the same time, she had a very close relationship with uh, with a woman friend, and I try to make sense of that as well. Um but in the end, uh, I think she liked her own company, um, maybe uh, best of all. I mean, it's interesting when I um, when I started doing this research. I um, I don't know. I felt like I was getting 
kind of a little weird vibe or pushback from people at the Denver Public Library. And then someone finally told me that the word on the street was that I was trying to suggest that Quantrill McClung and Bernice Blackwelder were in an intimate relationship. And I'm like, what? what where did that <laughs> where did that come from? Like, it was just like, they read me, I guess they read me as a lesbian. And that would be the only thing that would interest me about these women. Um, and I, I mean, I don't know, I guess it's possible that they had an intimate relationship. I think it's unlikely. I don't, I don't see a whole lot of evidence of that, although they were certainly, um, you know, intellectual intimates and, and very, very close friends. But, you know, Quantrill McClung, there's something quite queer about her, um, her early life. She and her friends, I mean, this was not unusual among young women at this time, but they, they love to cross dress and have costume parties. And, um, yeah, so I try to make, uh, make, sense of of all of that in the in their lives and and think a little bit about how those intimate lives shaped how they saw Kit Carson's intimate life as well. I I think not just in relationship to Quantrill McClung's um youth, but just generally, you can see that your approach to gender in this book is very influenced by queer studies. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you know, that approach to gender in this book, how it how it shaped the stories you tell. Well, uh, it certainly shaped how I um, how I approached the archive and what I looked for and what I was willing uh, to see there, um, not in the ways that you know, whoever was upset when I first started doing this research at the Denver Republic, not in the ways that they suspected, I think. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that makes me really angry. Um, And so in many ways, I I pushed on because like, you cannot tell me why I am doing this work, and how who I am influences how I am making sense of these women. I am going to tell you (laughs) who I am and how that influences, you know, how I see these women and their intimate lives. But I think, um, you know, there's, there's a, a lot of queerness in the story I tell and not just the obvious of, you know, Quantrill McClung's sort of complicated intimate life and, her, you know, exuberant uh, cross-dressing with her friends. Um, But even Bernice Blackwelder, when she was a young married woman and she and her husband Harold were performing in Chicago and really touring all around uh, the country as performers, they lived um, much of the time, not just the two of them in an apartment, but they lived in households with other performers. And sometimes it might be, Harold and Bernice and Bernice's sister who was divorced and her sister's son and a couple of other women who were maybe performers or maybe did some other, and they were very queer households. Um, Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so I, I read evidence in, in that way as well. Um, So I don't know, are there other examples you can think of that you want me to elaborate on? You know, I, I don't 
I I was sort of thinking about how the centerpiece of this book is the relationship between these two women. And even though, you know, like you say, I didn't get the sense that they had a romantic relationship, but it was probably the most intimate relationship of the book, you know, that they were. And, and there's something that is both queer and, you know, feminist and that, you know, that overlapping beautiful confluence about centering that relationship between these two women. Right. I mean, I, I think, you know, they each had other, you know, Bernice Blackwelder had a husband, the other, they both had, you know, other very, very close friends, but in some ways, you know, it may have been the most or one of the most important relationships, um, you know, in either of, of their lives. And, you know, there's a way in which, so for example, they were introduced um, by, uh, by letter um, by a man uh, who was an attorney in Kansas who knew Bernice Blackwelder's uh, father and family. And he, he never published anything about Kit Carson, but he just loved Kit Carson. And he helped to um, subsidize anyone in like the 1950s, early 60s, who was doing research on Carson. So he knew Bernice Blackwelder, knew her family, in fact, had courted her at one point, but uh, that that didn't work out. Um, And he also learned um, of uh, Quantrill McClung's interest in Kit Carson. So he introduced the two of them, said, you, you really need to know about one another's work. So they wrote to one another and, you know, uh, continued writing to one another for 30 years. Um, but over the course of their friendship, it took like, I don't know, 20 years for Bernice Blackwelder to reveal to Quantrill McClung that this guy had actually courted her at one point and wanted to, wanted to marry her. Um, and so she reveals this after many, many, many years. And um, in, in a letter or something tells Quantrill McClung that um, they had taken a trip with some other Kansans once and Bernice Blackwelder wore a red dress and ever after, you know, John McCurdy called her Red Wing. So then Quantrill like writes her back and, you know, and, and calls her Red Wing or addresses her as what Red Wing and Bernice writes her back and says, Oh, when I saw Red Wing, I nearly swooned, (laughs) you know, so there's this kind of weird romance kind of trafficking in, John McCurdy and his interest in in uh, uh, Bernice Blackwelder. So um, yeah, it's 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 kind of an incredible relationship, especially given. So they lived close to one another just once for a few years. Bernice Blackwelder and her husband moved to the Denver area, so maybe three, two, three years. Um, but the rest of their relationship was all by letter. I mean, I've found reference to maybe three or four telephone conversations. This is when, you know, long distance telephone calls cost uh, money. Um, but it was, uh, you know, an extraordinarily intimate and, uh, I don't know, m- meaningful relationship to them 
intellectually, even though they were so different from one another. Bernice Blackwelder was really a political conservative. I mean, it's hard to tell from the material she left, but she seems to have been kind of a moderate Republican. Um, Quantrill McClung really eschewed politics. I don't think she really wanted to talk about it much. That may have been partly because she did this major genealogical project on all of Colorado's governors, and she had to get along with the Democrats and the Republicans. But I I think she was certainly more liberal in her views than Bernice Blackwelder. Um, And yet their their relationship, um, you know, endured uh, Mm -hmm. despite, despite these differences. Yeah, I I guess I also wanted to ask um, because you know I I read a little bit of this book when you were writing it, um, and I definitely knew you were in the book, but I I don't think I quite knew that um, Camille, your love, Camille Grant Gonzalez, was in the book as much as she was. I you know I expected her to be in the acknowledgments, but she was there too, um, and I guess I was wondering if you could talk about her place in the book also. Sure. Well, you know, um, sort of consistent with this notion I was developing that I could not write about these women uh, and pick apart their lives uh, the way I was without um, also being accountable myself. Um, You know, I was in a 23-year relationship with Camille Godin Gonzalez. She was from New Mexico. Much of what I knew about New Mexico, New Mexican history, or how I was first exposed to it, came from that uh, from that relationship. So um, she was always going to be a part of it. Certainly, she. Uh, was a great supporter of this project and, you know, read about half of it. But, um, you know, as the book uh, reveals in, in uh, 2013, she was uh, diagnosed with cancer, lived 14 months and uh, died in 2015. The book was maybe, I don't know, two thirds, even maybe even more than that done by then. But suddenly all of those parts had to be rewritten. Um, and um, actually the, the finishing of that last quarter or third of the book and the rewriting of those parts of the book that you know dealt with my relationship with Camille, and there's probably, I don't know, all in all, no more than three or four pages of material in you know, the, this entire long book. Um, but the reworking and rewriting and writing new uh, material about that relationship and my relationship to the history of the West and New Mexico and thinking about uh, intimate relationships was, of course, transformed by that loss. And doing that writing is one of the things that helped me get through a period of the darkest grief that I, that I can imagine, that I can imagine. Um, so in many ways, this is, uh, the book is, even though there might only be, you know, three or four pages where Camille figures in it, in many ways, it, it, it is a tribute, uh, 
to her and to what um, what my life with her exposed me to the history of the West and particularly uh, uh, of New Mexico. Mm-hmm. I I just appreciate how this book is so um, clear eyed about everyone's humanity and everyone's loves and faults. Um, and, you know, I think you sort of half jokingly at the beginning talk about this use of the word complicated that people use now so frequently, but then you use it and it, it does seem to be true about so many people in the book, including yourselves. And there's a real honesty um, and empathy about it, which I, I really appreciate from beginning. And it's, it's easy for that not to be the case when you're writing, I think about the past. Um, but oh, I, thank you. Yeah. Um, so I, Susan, we've taken up a lot of your time, but, um, I wanted to thank you so much for joining us. Um, and people who listen, please go out and pick up a traffic in men, read it from beginning to end, read the footnotes, the whole thing. It's, um, a joy. <laughs> so thank you so well, much. Thank you, Jen. It's really been a pleasure. And I, I really appreciate you taking this time and, and talking to me about the book. <laughs>